Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum that encompasses finance, technology, and geopolitics. With these SALT Talks, we try to do what we do at our in-person SALT conferences, which is to provide a platform for big, uh, exciting ideas, as well as to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. Uh, today, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Kai-Fu Lee to SALT Talks. Uh, Dr. Lee spoke at SALT 2019 uh, about artificial intelligence uh, and machine learning. It was a fascinating talk that was led actually by Anthony's son, AJ. Uh, Kai-Fu is the chairman and chief executive officer of Cinovation Ventures, which is a leading venture capital firm uh, with about $2 billion in AUM. And it focuses on the development of next generation, the next generation of China's high-tech companies. Uh, prior to founding Cinovation in 2009, Kai-Fu was the president of Google China, as well as a senior executive at Microsoft, SGI, and Apple. Uh, he's the co-chair of the Artificial Intelligence Council for the World Economic Forum, and is the author of a New York Times best-selling book, which I highly recommend you read. It's called AI Superpowers. It was published in the fall of 2008. And uh, Dr. Lee tells us that his next book is coming out in about a year and a half. And we look forward to reading that one as well. Akai Fu will be interviewed today by Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, as well as the chairman of SALT. And I'll turn it over to Anthony and Kai Fu now to begin the interview. Well, John, thank you very much. I think uh, Kaifu's book was uh, 2018, the fall of 2018, not 2008. So it was a, a way more current book, but it was a fascinating discussion about artificial intelligence. And I want to start with your origin, uh, Dr. Lee, if you don't mind, because I think it's always fascinating for people. You mentioned at the SALT conference uh, that uh, you sort of got interested in AI in your sophomore year in college. And so just take us through the steps of what you were thinking about then and how it led to where you are now. Sure, uh, Anthony, thank you. Uh, and John for giving me the chance to talk to this great audience. Uh, yeah, I, I got fascinated uh, back in the, uh, about 1980, my sophomore year, when I went to Columbia and I was given an introduction to artificial intelligence. And I thought this would be the last technology for humanity, that we would figure out our brain and then we would build these amazing robots and life would be wonderful. Uh, didn't quite work out that way. I think there are people who have those um, uh, either dystopian or utopian beliefs about AI, but what really happened in the last five years is all these AI-based machine learning technologies started to work and they started doing amazing job on one task at a time. But um, these are amazing tools for us to use, but we are actually nowhere close to building that um, artificial general intelligence, something that's equal to our, our brain. Well, when I, when I, you know, I've obviously, uh, I've, I've sat in on things at Singularity University and uh, I've listened to Elon Musk and I've, uh, we, 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 we hear about artificial intelligence, and you and I are old enough to remember HAL, uh, the computer from 2001 Space Odyssey. So, so what is realistic for us? What is realistic for people living on the planet today in terms of where artificial intelligence can go? And what will our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren see 
from the world of artificial intelligence in terms of the exponential development. Right. So uh, AI is actually very powerful, but also very limited. It's powerful in the sense that if you have one single domain in which you have a lot of data and you throw that data at AI and tell it to learn something, something objective, something meaningful, and it will do that task better than people. So the first wave of such applications was the internet. That's why Google, Facebook, Amazon are so good at targeting us individually based on what we've done in our history on things that we might want to read or we want to buy. Then came the financial institutions. So automated uh, loans and uh, investments, quantitative investments and um, insurance, they're coming up next. And then data in businesses. So, you know, we're using Zoom now, we're creating data. That data can be mined. Smart things can be built from that for education, work, business, and pretty much any traditional uh, industry. This is all happening right now. This is not for our you know, grandchildren. This is happening now. Then AI will start to see and hear, but not just with eyes and ears. Uh, AI can already recognize objects uh, at higher accuracy than people and understand and recognize speech at higher accuracy than people. But what's more is now there are all these new sensors being plugged in to AI so AI can make decisions by aggregating all these sensors. So the sensors can, for example, see things that people cannot see. They can see sense temperature, humidity, they can do 3D reconstruction. So pretty much AI perception will definitely outdo human perception. Then finally, AI will move. And of course, we already have our beloved Roomba, but AI will do much better than that. Beyond that, AI will be in the factory, warehouse, uh, buses, highway, and then eventually cars, autonomous vehicles, so that uh, it can move with a similar uh, capability as people. So you have these four waves adding up together, building a lot of very valuable tools and applications to help us, but none of it has the capability of thinking, self-awareness, true understanding, uh, compassion, creativity, all of that is missing. It is simply taking one task, lots of data, with human telling you what to optimize, and then optimizing it so well that for that task, it beats people. But let, let's talk about that other wave, though. Is it is it possible, Dr. Lee, because I've, I've obviously read your book, but I want you to explain it to others, about the consciousness, about the empathy, the uh, ability to change conversation, picking up uh, emotional cues or body language from somebody. Is that something in the future for AI? Okay, so we need to segment that into a few things. The true feeling, the way we feel, the consciousness, the self-awareness that we have, uh, we currently have no idea how to build that for AI. So that could be 20 years, 30 years, or longer away. We don't know. But it's probably not soon because we have no idea how to build that at all. However, can AI guess our emotion? Probably. Uh, because we give a lot of cues, and AI can notice these small cues better than people. So if you want to build a tool that has you and me 
talking to each other and have AI guess at any given period of time whether I was anxious, happy, um, uh, sad, angry, uh, suspicious. It can probably make a more accurate guess, guess than people. Uh, then can AI pretend to be angry and happy? Well, of course it can. If you have AI create a digital human that looks like a, you know, you've all seen deepfake, that's AI. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we, can, we can build a deepfake on Anthony and make that deepfake uh, speak like Anthony and appear angry or appear happy. So that is also possible. I, I, so, I want you to make me, I want you to make me happy, Dr. Lee, okay? So we're focused on the whole Buddhist element of that. Right, right. We'll make sure we do that. Well, this is also, so I think this is pretty amazing that I th the surprising thing about AI is for something that has absolutely no self-awareness, no human brain, um, and uh, no feeling, it can exhibit feeling and perceive feeling. So that's the strangeness of AI. Similarly, you think AI machine translation works so well, better than us, However, it doesn't really understand the word you say. It is merely mapping words to other words, having been trained on trillions of other words. So this is all data-driven mechanism that exhibits somewhat intelligent behavior, but has no real understanding. It is just matching symbols and giving you other symbols. So, but, but over the last 40 years, while you've been studying and working on AI, you've obviously learned a lot about the human brain. And so is the brain a computer, Dr. Lee? How would you describe the brain to somebody? If an alien landed here and you would say, okay, the human brain is what, based on your observation? Well, it's still um, really unfathomable from a computer standpoint. We don't know how to simulate the brain. People are working on it. But if we think about what it is that makes us humans um, uh, valuable, meaningful entities. What, what makes our lives full, it certainly isn't doing what AI already does very well. Um, people separate, um, uh, Daniel Kahneman wrote a very famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, in which yes. he talked about system one and system two thinking. And in some sense, AI, is doing the system one thinking, which is I see, I recognize, I heard, I heard something, and I recognize this word. So it's almost um, uh, reflect, reflective, uh, reflexive, and almost perhaps um, uh, muscle reflex. So it's things that we do without imperception and without deep thinking. But what is interesting about the brain, uh, as uh, Dr. Kahneman said, is that we're able to think deeply, think strategically, think holistically, plan things in a very large space of possibilities, but we just know that we have, if we do A, they'll respond by B, then we do C. So this is very uh, clear focus and, uh, and awareness in making our, our decisions. And, and also with that, the ability to be creative, and, uh, and also, of course, our emotions and, and compassion. So to answer your question, I think it's the system two stuff that makes us uh, really unique. And um, that's why people can be brilliant, like um, Einstein or um, 
uh, Steve Jobs, and that's why people can be uh, compassionate, like M Mother Teresa, and, and these are special people, and these are the special qualities that we have and that AI cannot do and possibly can never do. So I would Okay, so you don't, yeah, that's my question. You don't think, could it ever be replicated based on your observation? Well, there are many, many views on that because no one knows the answer. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's maybe impossible to do because we currently don't know how to do it. And also I'd like to think that these technologies happen for a positive constructive reason, not because we want to build machines to replicate us. There's gotta be something uh, innate about us that, that, that we are, that makes us human, that makes this life meaningful. So, so I think we have to hold on to that belief that well, AI can. And, and the positive stuff about AI, you know, our mutual friend, Peter Diamandis has written a lot about the future and what he calls the abundance and that there is a, a world ahead of us where through machine learning and AI and lots of other things that are going on in the world uh, that we can end things like poverty. We can end sort of the income divide. And so talk a little bit about how, how AI could be a part of that over the next generation. What do you envision, sir? Um, well, on the constructive side, clearly AI can make better decisions. It can uh, for within limited tasks. AI can take over routine tasks that we have to do. If you think about all the system one stuff, those are more the routine tasks, right? If you think about the job of a receptionist, some of that job may be very interesting. The human element, the warmth, the greeting, the compassion, the branding image on your customers. But a lot of that work is very boring. Show me your face, show me your ID, print you an ID, who are you seeing, call the, call the person. Well, the boring part can be done by AI and you can extrapolate that to the job of an accountant, a lawyer, um, uh, even a doctor. Um, and, and, and these jobs, interestingly, AI will take care of the repetitive, routine, and quantitative, things that we're not very good at. And then we get to focus on what we're good at, which is the system to thinking, the analytical, the creative, the compassionate, the human to human connection. So, so my, uh, I think Peter and I uh, share this belief that AI is here to take away the routine work so we can be liberated from it. And we can spend our time, all of it, on things that makes us uniquely human. That would be the most positive um, direction. And can you talk a little bit about healthcare? Because I know that you have a belief that AI is going to certainly help us in diagnostic healthcare, research data, uh, enlighten us about where you think that's going using artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, so healthcare is an area where AI really hasn't um, yet made a huge dent yet, but, but it is so perfectly designed for AI because AI would work well in domains where you have large amount of data and very clear uh, outcomes and labels uh, and the longitudinal data over you know, years and decades. And that's exactly what the healthcare records have. Um, and also AI can uh, basically deliver very targeted personalized um, uh, determination 
the reason we uh, really get addicted to Facebook is it personalizes and shows us what it knows we want to see. The reason we buy so much on Amazon is because Amazon shows us things that it knows that we as individuals want to see. So uh, yet, if you think about medicine, for each disease, we're largely all treated using a single um, prescription or maybe uh, for complex things like cancer, there are maybe multiple uh, types depending on each person's um, uh, various uh, background. But, but each person is unique and uh, humans, human doctors and human teaching of medicine just cannot possibly teach each doctor to treat each person uniquely according to that person's background and um, um, the DNA uh, and, and, and genome sequencing and, and, and family history and so on. But yet, when we, when we have all the data from the patients from one country, that can be trained so that it can specifically target each individual with sure. a treatment that's just right for that person. So that personalized um, medicine and training and, and um, diagnosis is something we can look forward to. Of course, it will have to overcome privacy laws, maybe anonymize the data, maybe use some technology to protect uh, people losing their privacy, but I think that uh, can be done. And once that is done, what will happen to the future of treatment and healthcare is that people who, for people who can afford it, which is basically all, basically most Americans today, uh, you will get a human doctor aided by an AI doctor. The AI doctor will uh, suggest the human doctor ask you questions, take the answers, look it up, suggest treatments, and the human doctor will tease out all about your background and condition and also um, care about you, show compassion, connect to you, visit you at home, giving you a higher chance of uh, recovery or survival. So that's the symbiotic combination that uses people for what people do best and machines for what machines do best. But finally, what's interesting is um, in poorer areas, in underdeveloped countries that cannot afford this expensive doctor who has to go through medical school and charges a lot of money because of a high salary, one could imagine a pure AI doctor uh, that essentially draws no salary, runs on nothing except electricity, um, give decent treatment, uh, significantly up, bringing up the uh, fatality rate, uh, improving the treatment, even for the poorer regions of the world. So I see a, a lot of opportunities there. Of course, there are also things like um, uh, robots uh, and smart, uh, improved uh, intuitive surgical, uh, using robots to do surgery, uh, AI for drug discovery. So there are many, and also connecting AI to insurance uh, and, and healthcare. So once it knows about you and your family history and your finances, it can design a perfect insurance policy for you that's much more economical than what you can buy from insurance companies. So I think it's, it's, it's endless when you connect all that data together. And, 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 and so that brings up the question of further automation. And as we both know, the, uh, the pandemic, unfortunately, has raised unemployment in the U.S. to 14.7%. And that's you know, closing in on depression-like levels. Uh, certainly, we hope this is a temporary thing. But do you think it's accelerating 
the trends? Will it accelerate the use of AI? And will people that had traditional jobs, like the ones you're describing, will they lose out to AI or is it too soon for that? Okay, first um, on the AI impact on jobs before, and then we get into pandemic. Uh, the, while I believe in the symbiotic nature for AI in many human jobs, as I described earlier, um, AI will take away many jobs as well because if it can do 30, 50, 70% of different types of jobs, jobs of receptionists, a security guard, and um, entry-level accountant, uh, assistants, uh, entry-level paralegal, and um, factory workers, drivers. So you list all of this. Uh, some in a, in a small number of cases, the whole job goes away because AI takes it over. But in most cases, AI takes over 30, 50, 70 percent. But that still leads to a reduction of employment because in a pool of workers, AI will take the some jobs that it can do, leaving the rest for, for a fewer number of humans to do. So undoubtedly, there will be a significantly fewer people working on today's white-collar routine job and blue-collar routine job. Uh, there will be other jobs created, uh, but we don't quite know what they are yet, and they will tend to be more complex in nature, uh, more creative in nature, or more human-to-human -human connection in nature, because if, if, um, uh, if, if AI, can, if AI can, can do the job, um, then can, can do the routine jobs, then the jobs available for people would have to be elevated. So there is a training gap. So while I believe there will be many more jobs created and, and the, the problem of taking the people whose jobs are displaced and retraining them for the jobs that are being created is an up-leveling problem, is a training problem that somehow people have to understand what jobs are safe and get trained for it. So that's before the pandemic. Now the pandemic uh, will do some problematic things and also some constructive things. So the constructive thing that pandemic will do for our work habits is that it pushes us to much more online and digitized behavior. I mean, the fact that we're having this uh, session here on Zoom and the fact that people are able to work from home and the billion kids are taking uh, classes at home are signs that we are increasingly going online and increasingly getting comfortable with a digitized style of working. So the problem, of course, the opportunity is once digitized, you've got data. Once you've got data, AI can work. So that's the, that's the great thing about creating value and improving efficiency. Um, and uh, the problem of that is once AI can work, and also outsourcing can work, uh, jobs will, will be challenged because um, imagine in the past, if you, had, if you had a job that required you to go to the office, meet people and, and talk to people, then it seems hard for AI and robot to take it over. But now you're doing that job online and remotely and by video conferencing. And then it will um, become obvious to the managers of the company, that an AI could do your job too. Uh, the decision process may be relatively simple, can be learned. Um, there's a technology called RPA, uh, Robotic Process Automation, 
it's rapidly taking away these uh, various types of white collar routine jobs. So, so I believe um, the pandemic will lead to more digitization online and outsourcing and also automation. That's one, one unfortunate outcome. The other unfortunate outcome is that uh, companies will have tighter budgets. They'll have to do cost cutting. And before, they might not think about, well, let me spend $2 million to replace $2 million of salary, $2 million of software to replace $2 million of soft, uh, salary over some period of time. People might not do it, or maybe the company's making money. They feel if they did that, it would look bad. Uh, but now everybody's scrambling, everybody's tight, everyone's cost cutting. So companies are going to be more willing to look to to look at uh, cost cutting well, metrics. Makes sense. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, like uh, be, before I turn it over to uh, questions from our audience, I, I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between the China Chinese government and the American government and the competition with AI. Uh, there are people in the United States that feel China is ahead of the United States and, and so on forth. Perhaps they are. I don't know. Are they? Secondary question is you and I, of course, want there to be a very healthy and strong bilateral relationship between the Chinese government and the U.S. government. But I'd like you to talk about those tensions, if you don't mind, how they relate to AI and where do we stand vis-a-vis uh, the progress being made in AI, uh, China versus the United States? Uh, sure. Uh, AI turns out to be a technology that is not such a rocket science. There are probably a, a, you know, a few dozen important discoveries. If you study them, if you get the technology, the code, you can probably implement AI uh, after months of training, not even years of training. So that is an advantage for China. So while the U.S. has more of the brilliant researchers who write up the papers, uh, China is, has a larger army of engineers who are building um, solutions in the industry. And China's other big benefit uh, is that uh, China is a large country. There's a lot of data. AI works better with more data so that China has more engineers, more data, fewer brilliant scientists, so in some sense, U.S. and China can and perhaps should, in an ideal world, uh, be partners in this, where U.S. is doing more than deeper research, the more complex technologies, like you know, autonomous vehicles, where China can do more of the low-hanging fruit, uh, the implementation, the things where it requires a lot of data, and then on, on, on uh, domains like uh, healthcare, where Americans are extremely concerned about privacy and there are laws like HIPAA pre preventing aggregation of data in the US. Perhaps Chinese companies can, can build models using advanced American medical technologies and AI technologies, but on Chinese data is anonymized, but there, there's no equivalent of HIPAA in China. So that aggregation can happen. And then the outcome can be shared by both countries. So in an idealistic um, uh, and maybe at this point naive uh, viewpoint, uh, the two countries are highly complementary. There's not a war, AI war going on. China can build all the things uh, without uh, uh, you know, 
create dependencies on American products. And U.S. can, of course, build things on its own. But the two countries have such different talents, they ought to work together. But that may be pretty hard now. Yeah, no, I, I, I get the tension. Uh, uh, John, uh, let's kick it over to some of our guests that are inside our chat room here. Uh, 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 ask Dr. Lee a question for us. Yeah, the, the first question is about uh, GANs, Generative Adversarial Networks. You, know, you talked about deep fakes and things like that. What are the real benefits of GANs in terms of creating positive change to society? And what potential do they have to create general AI? And also, what are some potential dangers of you know, advanced AI becoming very prevalent in society? Uh, yeah, generic, um, yeah, generative adversarial networks are very cool technology. Basically, you're building two networks, one to do what you want done, the other to be a critique. And then the critique will tell it, hey, uh, this is not right. Then it fixes itself. So, and then it continuously improves itself. So there are many, many applications of GANs. Uh, the one that's probably most infamous, uh, notorious, is the deep fakes. Um, it is using that technology that it manages to turn a, a video from some other third party into you uh, or a voice can be converted that way. So when applied constructively to you know, building entertainment and games and uh, movies with full licensing of the, of the pro properties, it's uh, amazingly fun. But when, when you take a, uh, a famous politician or movie star and put their faces on doing acts that they don't want to be seen doing, then, uh, then it's a problem. So um, it's, it's the kind of technology where uh, the technology um, is used by the bad people to do something, then the good guys catch up and catch them, then the bad guys improve again, and unfortunately, because of the nature of the technology that you have, a good guy and a bad guy, uh, basically the two networks, the good guy network and the bad guy network. So they continue to iterate. And, and, and the moment you think you, you, you got something, um, you, got, you got a way to, uh, to catch the bad guys, they take it into the, their training as well. So it's very hard to say whether if we purely competed on the good guy, bad guys, the good guy continue to try to catch the bad guys doing the deep fakes. The bad guys continue to come up with yet another way to do a deep fake. It's not clear whether this will lead to a good outcome or a bad outcome. So my belief is often we have to resort to other technologies that will guarantee that the worst case scenario doesn't happen. So with respect to deep fake, probably we'll need to move to some sort of a future blockchain assisted capture device, which guarantees that this, this photo, this video is authentic. So any, and it can catch anything that's been made on editing it. So some technology like that is probably needed to absolutely guarantee the problem of deep fakes. Uh, otherwise I would warn the, the people watching that we should expect there to be more deep fakes um, happening in the social networks spread as, um, as we've got fake news, now we've got fake video and fake voice. It's very, very hard to catch and uh, it's gonna be a while before we uh, eliminate it. So people have to be advised not to believe everything you see, even if it looks real. Any the other next questions, question, 
Yep. Yeah, there's several more questions. So I'm going to combine two questions into one. We talked about U.S. and China in terms of where they are uh, in the AI race, if you will. We have two questions about emerging market economies, ex-China, as well as Europe. How well are those economies doing in terms of advancing uh, with AI and machine learning? And what what potential does AI have to sort of bring emerging economies uh, you know, into a higher quality of life and into a more modern era? Okay. Uh, in the current status, I think U.S. and China are ahead of the other countries in terms of AI in an aggregate score. That is research plus implementation plus monetization, right? Uh, Europe, I think, is very strong in research, but the entrepreneurial ecosystem is currently nowhere close to U.S. or China. And unless that gets fixed, Europe is likely to be uh, considerably behind um, in, in AI uh, technology. Uh, India is another uh, possible country that could do very well because it has also a large um, uh, number of people in data. Um, we have not quite yet seen that, but I think the potential is there. And then, the, um, and then there's uh, uh, obviously Russia, which is very good in math. There is uh, Southeast Asia, which is a large group of um, people, but, but not one culture, one language. So, and then it, it goes down from there in terms of likelihood of, of being very strong in AI. But what can AI do for these countries? So first, the problem is that AI will create these um, $100 billion companies, and they're currently pretty much all American and Chinese. So the wealth is going to these companies. And AI will decimate a lot of jobs, most of which are routine jobs. So it will do. So AI as a, uh, a wealth creation is giving that wealth to U.S. and China, as what as as a job uh, it, um, replacement. Um, uh, in in terms of replacing jobs, it will take more jobs away from developing countries because developing countries have more routine jobs. So that is the seriously problematic part of, uh, of AI for the rest of the world. There are some good news about AI in the developing worlds. Uh, it will dramatically reduce the cost of education uh, because there will be virtual teachers which can do a pretty decent job of teaching certain subjects, especially entry-level ones. There will be reasonable quality virtual AI doctors uh, that will also provide better healthcare. So some services I think will help the people who are in the most extremely serious extent of uh, destitute. But, uh, but as a whole, economically, it is a problem. And, and, and I think um, all the countries have to pay attention about the impact of, of AI and find a, a path that makes sense for the country. Yeah, we have a couple more questions. So. In science fiction, a, a very popular topic in movies like Blade Runner and others is the idea of consciousness and whether AI and technology will create immortality for humans in a way. Going into sort of the, scientific, uh, the science fiction aspect of that, uh, do you think that AI will eventually be able, as Anthony was talking about earlier, replicate some aspects of consciousness and, and provide immortality for humans? 
there are a lot of different opinions on this subject. Uh, there are people who think it's uh, imminent, it's within a decade. Uh, there are people who think it's uh, another two, three decades. And there are people who think it might be never. Uh, and I think, um, I think it's hard to say which, which thinking is right. Um, but I would like to think that first, we have no idea how to build consciousness. Secondly, we don't really understand what consciousness is. And thirdly, we people must believe that we have a reason to be on this earth. So I think it makes sense to believe that consciousness is one is the thing that makes humans unique and that it may not be buildable by machines. I think that will give us the um, uh, confidence to, to, to go on. And I think it also is a plausible outcome and uh, we should let people work on it. But until we see uh, significant breakthroughs, there's no reason to, to believe the, uh, the, the, the age of the robots are coming. Uh, I think we're still quite a ways from that. Another question relates to the ethics of AI and where, where AI needs to make decisions in real time, some of which could involve law enforcement or uh, conflict or war type scenarios. How do you program ethics into artificial intelligence? Mm -hmm. um, this is a very important aspect and I think we're in a very early phase right now. Uh, right now, a, most AI programmers are not even taught uh, ethics, nor do they think they play a role in, in ethics. And that's important for the AI tools to change. Um, and, and I think the AI education, uh, some schools like Stanford and MIT are starting to make sure the AI students are aware that their profession can impact um, good and bad, right and wrong in society. Just like, you know, uh, uh, doctors um, have to make, make an oath that they will do no harm. I think AI engineers will increasingly uh, need, need to do that. Uh, it's important also to note that when we read uh, all of these um, AI disasters in the newspaper, not all of which are a result of uh, AI not understanding ethics, there are it's usually a different explanation. For example, there are cases where people talk about a certain company, trained their HR system on AI, they didn't have a lot of women, so it became prejudiced, it interviewed more men and fewer fewer women, became a downward spiral. That story is true, but that could have been avoided if the programmer or the person who runs the AI algorithm recognized that their training set, their training data, was not fairly balanced between men and women. And, and, and if engineers don't notice it, our tools ought to notice it. So these kind of ethical issues, many of which um, uh, um, may, may, be, may be solvable. Um, the, the other that's talked a lot about is, um, is, is the um, uh, autonomous vehicle uh, trolley problem. And certainly it's an issue when, you, when the car is faced with different outcomes. Um, and, and certainly that, that, you know, it's, it's people talk about if you have two choices, one is 100% going to kill one person, the other is 52% um, going to kill two people, which do you do? It's, it, is, it is in fact a hard choice. But in, in reality, we have to remind ourselves 
that uh, there are very few cases um, that you really have two people killing decisions in an autonomous vehicle. Secondly, we have to remind ourselves, humans don't even have this programmed in. Um, if you talk to all the people who have um, been in accidents, who have caused accidents, got in trouble as drivers, they can usually hardly explain why they did what they did. So but I, I believe the, um, um, the glass half full would tell us is that if we program ethics in some reasonable way for the decision making and with the powerful sensors that AI can see and the de deliberate decisions as opposed to people just getting, you know, um, drunk or tired or sleepy and make a mistake, uh, AI won't do that. So at the end of the day, uh, AI will really save a lot of lives. And, and while we do need to focus on training the engineers, building the tools, I think at the end of the day, uh, AI will save so many lives um, that yes, there will be ethical issues and decisions and mistakes made, but in the grand scheme of things, AI doctor will save so many lives more than the few ethical mistakes it may make. And AI autonomous driver will save so many lives more than the few ethical decisions that it will make a mistake on. So we have to look at in the grand scheme of things, not just focus on the one case where it um, appears to be not working. Well, Kai-Fu, we really want to thank you for joining us today. We're going to wrap it up there. Uh, I know you're, you're in Beijing right now, beginning your quarantine. Uh, you know, the Chinese government, as well as, as uh, other governments in, in Asia, have done a great job of stamping out the virus. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, Anthony, I don't know if you have any closing remarks for Kai-Fu. No, we're, we're, we're grateful to you. We hope that we can get you back to the SAW conference physically, Kai-Fu. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have to create an artificially intelligent Kai-Fu to uh, entertain our guests and educate our guests. But in the meantime, uh, we wish you great health and great personal safety. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at one of our next events. Thank you again Thank for you. joining us today. Yeah, see you in Salt. Bye-bye. Okay.